Good morning. Happy Resurrection Day. Praise the Lord. So, so this is to me the highest and the most meaningful of all holidays. Um, this is Resurrection Day. We are gathered this morning to worship Jesus and to celebrate his resurrection from death and all that that means to us. This celebration of Jesus' resurrection began before he rose from the dead. On a Thursday, um, on a, earlier that week, during Jesus' Passion Week, he had ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey in triumph to shouts as people quoted the prophecies about the king they were expecting. And they shouted, Hosanna, which means like, save us, or you can save us. Son of David, which is the nickname for the prophesied king. So they're saying, you're our king. You're the king of Israel. So he's riding in mightily on this peaceful donkey, coming into the city where the temple is. And we know that Jesus is the center of, of the temple and the presence of God, right? So he's coming to fulfill the reason why the temple was built. So they're crying out to him, basically, you're the one the scriptures foretold who would come in and take his rightful place and fix all that is broken and make the wrong things right. And all of these people had read Genesis chapter 3. You know, they knew God created the world and everything was good, good. But they knew, like, and Adam sinned and Eve was deceived. And, and everything was broken and everything had been stained with, with guilt for these crimes against the Lord in trying to usurp the Lord's order of creation. And all mankind had been born into that for all of these generations. And here on that day, as they shouted Hosanna, they were saying, you can save us. And later that week, he was crucified in the same city where he had just been worshiped and his disciples were scattered. So on a Thursday evening, after he had had the Last Supper with his disciples, which we will ceremonially, ceremonially reenact when we share the bread and wine together at the end of this sermon, he told them that he was going away, and they still didn't get it, and, and they were still just kind of taking all these things in. And he'd been telling them in advance that he was going to be left alone, but that he would not be alone. And now then, we don't know the exact date Jesus died. But we know that it was between about 1,985 years ago and 1,991 years ago. Was anybody born in 1985? Anybody born in 1991? Well, then you can specially relate. John Nonvesh. So let's open to Matthew chapter 6 and read together of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 26, verse 46. We know that he had shared the Last Supper with his disciples, and he'd shared wine and bread with them for the last time before he was broken and his blood was poured out for them. And then he went down from Jerusalem and up the hillside into the Garden of Gethsemane, like how he once 
long ago had walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Now he came to a garden to prepare for his betrayal. And in his agony, his disciples, some of whom had just sworn their allegiance to him, fell asleep. And he woke them up saying, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Peter, who had done this, still totally didn't get it. And he thought that bringing about the kingdom of God was all of on him. But Jesus was beginning this dark chapter about to end in resurrection day, which ushered in the kingdom that they did not expect with a kind of holiness that they did not expect. Verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples, disciples left him and fled. <coughs> then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. So, so you see, these were like all of the, the governors, all of the statesmen, all of the head pastors in town, maybe with a few exceptions, were all gathering. So you see the state of the nation of Israel and how good their religion was. This is like the culmination of it. all the scribes and the elders had gathered. Basically, anybody with standing in the community. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none though many false witnesses came forward because the, the elders and the chief priests had bribed people to come and make accusations against him. But even then, their testimony did not, did not agree. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? 
But Jesus remains silent, like a lamb before its shearers, like a lamb before the slaughter. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And after the high priest put him under oath, Jesus said, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest knew exactly what he meant. He knew that he had meant, I am your king and I am your judge and you will not escape my judgment. I'm coming for you. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? Then they answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I swear, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, Immediate, I did not grow up on a farm. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly, knowing, A, that he had betrayed the best person he had ever known, the one who he had just shouted, Hosanna, you can save us, you're our king, to. And because his best wasn't good enough. And he knew, he thought he knew, he could never recover from this. He could never overcome this shame. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Because they were under Roman occupation, they didn't have authority to, to execute somebody and pass the death sentence. So they took him to, to Pilate, the provincial governor, to get his permission to murder him. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. (laughs) 
They're living their life by this code of ethics that they have basically made up. And they're doing this during a sham trial to murder the best one who has ever walked the soil of their land. They see nothing. They're far from reality. They are far from the Lord. And this is the chief priests and the leading people of the community. They so desperately need somebody to bring God's righteousness and to explain and teach and help them to want to do God's real laws and to repent from living life according to the rules that they had made up for themselves and others. So they took counsel and bought with the silver the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And he took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. All through Jesus' Passion Week and his trial and his crucifixion and resurrection, scripture after scripture that was prophesied in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Jewish scriptures was being fulfilled one by one by one. And the Loctite case that Jesus is the real Christ is being sealed. And they who had read the Bible over and over and over again were blinded. God, help us in our blindness and help us to see you and experience you in new ways and in more ways, deeper than we ever have before, and then again and again, and to share it. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Why did he ask him that? He wasn't concerned about their religious laws or their temple. He wasn't concerned about whether they had broken all the ceremonial this, this or that. He wasn't concerned about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. He's the Roman governor, and he's concerned, is there going to be a rebellion? Is there going to be an insurrection? Is this guy going to be the next Jewish rebel to rise up against Rome? Rome could indeed squelch that rebellion, but it would be a bloodbath. And Pilate's tip-top number one goal is not truth, nor Messiah, nor anything about the Lord. His goal is to keep his job and to keep order at the expense of peace, at the expense of truth. He asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. It was like Jesus intended to die and had set in his heart to follow this course to the end. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. This was at the Passover, which is the celebration of 
the Israelite, their Israelite ancestors being released from bondage in Egypt, this gesture to the people is like a token. We Romans understand your Passover, and, and we're, we, we're kind of, we're your oppressors, but we're, we're good guys. We're with you. It was, it was a little, nice little token. And so, trying to get out of this killing Jesus thing, trying to prevent an insurrection and a, and a bloodbath, which would look very bad for his name and probably bad uh, before Caesar, to whom he had to answer. He said, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? His plan to get out of this had failed. And they said, Barabbas! Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified! And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. It's the same thing the elders and the chief priests said to Judas hours before when they said, what is righteousness and the Bible and truth to us? Take care of it yourself. We're not concerned about such things. It's ironic that Pilate would wash his hands. It's like that Jewish ceremonial washing they always did before they ate if they were following the rules. Was he innocent of Jesus' blood? To this day, the creed repeats, Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. It's ironic that in trying to shift the blame to those who were crying out, crucify him, that he himself was like, he was like the opposite of what the man beside him with the crown of thorns on his head was, was there to do. Pilate was there to shift the blame and make himself as if he were a righteous man, innocent of the blood of Jesus, innocent of all sin. And Jesus was there, silent under the accusations, for they were false, yet fully prepared to receive the just accusations against people like perhaps even Pilate himself, as he took on himself as his blood cleansed them and washed them and made them clean. Ironic, those two men standing beside each other like that. And after he had said, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. All the people answered. This is just like in the wilderness when all the people said, all that you have said we will do, Moses. We can keep all these commandments. And here, they're, they're, 
spiritual and actual descendants are saying the same thing again. And they say, His blood be on us and on our children. It's the same kind of statement. Do you see it? Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And I'm just thinking of the 12 legions. So a battalion is not a legion. A legion is bigger. And I'm thinking of the the 12 legions of angels that are observing this. And every one of them would have been a match for an entire army of Roman soldiers. So they're bringing the battalion in before Jesus and they strip him and put a scarlet robe on him and like as if they're, they're mocking him and saying, this is the kind of king you people deserve. And they twist together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Remember the psalm that says, he will rule them with an iron scepter. But a bruised reed he will not break. Consider as Jesus, their maker, their creator, the Lord of the universe, who is receiving on them, receiving in himself all of the sin and all of the shame that they are continuing to pile up. Consider that he is about to ascend and be seated at the right hand of God and take it in his hand, the iron scepter. Yet, for all of his powerful justice, his mercy on weak ones, like, like I often feel, his, his mercy is perfect as his justice is perfect. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The, the crucifixion he was about to endure was as much about shame as it was about torture and judgment. And even leading up to it, the Romans, mostly who despised the Jews over which they ruled, were presenting before them in mockery this king saying, you guys are, um, you guys are, are like vermin to us. And, and look at your king. And even as they're mocking them, it's ironic that they're saying, this is the king you deserve. Because they didn't deserve him. The world was unworthy of him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
And so the mocking continues. And yet, in the Lord's sovereignty, the Lord saw to it that Pilate wrote that and put that there. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The mocking continues. They're trying to make him look like the robbers next to which he was crucified. And yet, remember who Jesus was always eating with. The religious leaders in the years prior had always made fun of him because he was always eating with the sinners. This, in God's sovereignty, is a true picture of who Jesus is to us, superimposed over the attempts to mock him, humiliate him, and keep him squelched. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads at him and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And that's when the Lord started to alter the patterns of weather and supernaturally show the people that the darkness over the land he was about to undo. And the Lord caused in the middle of the day, beginning at noon, there to be darkness over all the land until the middle of the afternoon. And at that hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lima Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, totally clueless, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Can you see the spiritual confusion over the whole land, the darkness in which they lived? This is very much like today. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And the one who had breathed the breath and the wind of life into Adam's lungs in the beginning yielded up his breath and died for Adam's helpless race. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top as if people had pulled it apart, trying to break into the Holy of Holies and get close to God. But God came down from heaven and, he, and by the power of his eternal spirit, he tore the veil. And that day, God broke out into the land like had never been seen before. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, 
and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, pause. Who are these centurions? These are guys who are hardened soldiers and commanders. And they're responsible for keeping, keeping the brutal soldiers of Rome under them in strict discipline. These men have presided over, presided over crucifixions before and watched men hang on these crosses on other days like this, probably many times before, and they've watched them weep and whimper and suffocate to death. And now this man, perhaps the hardest and toughest man in that entire crowd, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And so the chief priests and the elders thought it had ended. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Imagine being Mary Magdalene and thinking through just a few years before how Jesus had cast demons out of you and completely changed your life. Imagine, imagine being, being one of the women who watched their brother Lazarus be called forth from the tomb. And imagine being party to Jesus being laid in the tomb, a dead, a dead body, a dead corpse, with no life in that body. And the stone rolled over it. It's like the, it reminds us of Lazarus being sealed in that tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate, ever motivated, ever motivated by preventing rebellion, said, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. This is now the second earthquake. A sign that, like it says in the Psalms, when God touches the mountains, they smoke and tremble because the presence of God is greater than the material world in such a way that when God draws near to us, our spirits quiver and even the rocks shake and break. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone, revealing an empty tomb, and he sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go and quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Do you remember just days before the woman who had broken the expensive jar of ointment and poured it on his head? And do you remember the woman who had washed his feet with her tears and her hair? And now these women, the first to whom Jesus appeared, grabbed his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Interestingly, he presented himself to them, not in Jerusalem and, or in the temple, but out in Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus is always drawing near to us when we are far away. And he's always distancing himself from those who live by their own standards and who condemn others to justify themselves. You see, Jesus was leaving the temple. His glory was departing. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And that would be a pretty believable story because if you were a soldier and you fell asleep on your post, you'd probably get like demoted, right? No, you'd probably get executed and it probably wouldn't be a very good one. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Certainly the story did come to the governor's ears. And in the interest of preventing an insurrection, he was satisfied to brush this one under the rug 
and go with the less believable story. Now the 11 disciples went into Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You can hear like an echo and a sonic boom and an earthquake going out over all creation. Can you feel it as he says that? So therefore, all of the religious beliefs that we here have ever had about Satan having authority over the world and Jesus having authority just in heaven until later he comes back and finally defeats Satan, we need to take that belief way back in time and even repent of it because it was at this hour that Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to me. And having already called, him, called them brothers, he was joining himself to them with an inseparable familial bond. Now that they were his family, now that he called them not servants, but friends, not friends, but brothers, he was causing them to be permanently drafted and joined like by blood, not by the blood of genetics, but by the blood of genetics by becoming human like all of us and by his own blood, which had made them truly family in the most powerful way. And when he committed to them this charge, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he was making that possible and he was making that our destiny. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. There are three things that Jesus accomplished at the cross and then sealed and perpetuated forever in the resurrection. The number one is the atonement. To atone means to get rid of sins. Every week we come and we gather here or uh, there was a time when I would not go to church because I was kind of slow in getting ready or I had stayed up late the night before and uh, I was too embarrassed to walk in late. This was not many years ago. And so I would skip church because I didn't want to walk in late. I was, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. That is just a little thing. But really, what we bring to church when we gather together are often real, serious, and grievous sins. And when we come... When we come into his presence, we come not into the presence of the one who is ruling with an iron scepter, dashing his enemies to pieces like pottery. We come into the presence of this almighty God seated on his throne in heaven who reaches out and touches us and welcomes us like Esther was welcomed into the throne room 
welcomes us with joy to come in and like play at, his, at the foot of his throne like children. And with freedom and confidence, we boldly approach the throne. That's why it's called the throne of grace. Unfortunately, there are about six pages of our sermon we're not going to get to because the scripture was so good. He not only removed our sin and our guilt, like John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you need forgiveness, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, even your sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Hebrews 9, 26 says, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Praise God. He not only removed from us our sin, he removed God's wrath. So the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment that we often carry too far into, into these hallowed walls or, or too far into our quiet times. He removed that too because he removed God's wrath. And when a kid comes to his dad after having done something bad and the dad's uh, sternness melts away into a smile, imagine that is just a small taste of what, your heaven, what is on your heavenly father's face towards you when his face is shining at you, when he is continually welcoming you into his presence because this is what he ordained before the ages began for all those he had named as sons and daughters. So by dying for our sins, he brought us close. Our sins had made a separation between us and God, but that will never again be true. Oh, we might experience some loss of sense of closeness, but that can never last. And on a day soon, there will be no more even sense of distance from God. Can you imagine that? That's what I'm looking forward to because I am a habitual and frequent sinner. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is not a theoretical thing. This is, he is the life and the way to approach the Father. And his life truly is like, like a, a river of living water welling up within us to eternal life. For in dying and then in rising from the dead, we see the beginning of the victory over sin and death everywhere, as far as the curse is found. He is the firstborn from the dead, and we are his brothers. We are his family. Isn't it wonderful that he's made us both children of the Heavenly Father and perfectly and fascinatingly and awesomely, yet logically, being Father, Son, and personal Holy Spirit, he can make us sons and daughters and children of God, and he can make us brothers. 
and being Lord exalted, he can wash our feet and send us out to do to one another likewise. He's unlike anybody else. And he is good and wonderful. While his justice is perfect, his mercy endures to a thousand generations. Quickly, how can we make sense of that statement we just made, that his resurrection is the first taste of the victory over sin and death everywhere, when we live in a world with much sin and much death. Death being like the ultimate expression of sin and evil, the, the finality of it, well, until Jesus rose from the dead. Now it sounds like it makes sense, but tomorrow when you're struggling with sin, it might not feel like it makes sense. It's like this. Um, during World War II, in Singapore, there was a certain prison camp, and it was long before the end of the war. The Allied forces had not yet uh, swept across the Pacific and reclaimed all territory occupied by the enemy. And that was most especially felt by those under the dreadful persecution in this Japanese prison camp. One of the prisoners had a shortwave radio. And when the news of Japan's defeat and surrender came over that radio, they were yet under the, I, would, I don't want to say rule, but it was, they were under the occupation of their oppressors. And that is what the Christian life is like. That is what it feels like. So at that time, in the prison camp, it said that the, the captive soldiers started to weep and laugh. It was like they came alive in a way that they couldn't have before until they saw the beginning of the end. And that is what the resurrection is like. Likewise, it's like in Europe. It was, I think, 11 months. 11 months between D-Day and the actual complete liberation of all in occupied Europe. But from the time that the beachhead was established and the neighboring towns were overtaken by the Allies who had come to rescue the oppressed under a brutal Nazi rule, from that time, it was obvious that it was the beginning of the end. There was no undoing what had been accomplished. And that is what the Christian life is like. In the 50th day from today, we will celebrate Pentecost which is the anniversary of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who has come to daily fill us and refill us with life so that the resurrection of Jesus is powerfully manifested in us and so that we are empowered to live with, with grace and ability to please God even though we ourselves are yet oppressed by our own flesh. God has accomplished all these things. He is able to fully sanctify us, and he will surely bring it to pass. Amen. I'd like to go a couple of minutes over. In conclusion, I want to discuss two things that we haven't mentioned thus far. Unbelief 
and proof. I used to be what they call an unbelieving believer. It's like that guy in the Bible who was like, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus is like, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. And Jesus was like, and, and the man cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That was me for most of my four years of ironically attending Bible college, where you're supposed to believe in supernatural things, you know. But like the disciples who were hiding and afraid on that first Easter morning, not even daring to hope because of their grief and disappointment, I gradually began to meditate on the suffering of God on behalf of sinners. I was Christian enough to know that Jesus is God, and the more I thought about that, why would God lower himself? I had all these things I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around, right? Can you relate? But the more I thought about that, the more I thought, why would he do something so unfair as to let himself be punished even though he had done no wrong? And I was stumped all of my unbelief began to unravel. I didn't know why the world was not fixed, why it was still broken. Um, I didn't know how to tell or how to believe in God loves me because I was certainly very lonely much of the time. And I didn't know what to expect from the future, but I gradually became persuaded that if God would substitute his own sinless son for sinners, and that didn't make sense to me, but it was still good and true, then maybe the rest of the things that didn't make sense to me would make sense later if I would put my trust in him. And so I did. My unbelief was put to rest when I got to know who Jesus is. And the newness of life that has been steadily growing in me since then has had so many wonderful effects on me and others that I'd have a hard time listing them. For example, in 2004, if you had told me I was going to be a successful husband and dad and employee, it would have sounded, I think, as much like irony as possibility. And that brings us to the second part of our conclusion. What is the greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The best proof of the resurrection is changed lives. It is reasonable to trust the written evidence of the resurrection as prophesied in the Jewish scriptures, testified of as fulfilled in the four gospels, and reaffirmed in each of the remaining 23 letters of the New Testament, which circulated widely through the known world. But to me, the best evidence of the resurrection is the changed lives. His disciples were broken, afraid, and grieving bitterly. And all of a sudden, the resurrected Jesus began to appear to them on many occasions after his resurrection until his ascension. And then he filled them with his spirit after he had gone up into heaven to sit on his throne and reign. And all of a sudden, lives were being changed everywhere. And the kind of Christianity that they practiced has resulted in liberty, fraternity, and equality on the earth, more by far 
than all the revolutions in thought and politics have since then. If you haven't studied the history of their kind of Christianity and its influence on societies since then, then you need to come over to my house and read a book with me. You're invited, just text me. The best proof of the resurrection is changed lives. So maybe you're already a Christian, or maybe you're thinking about becoming one. It's easy enough, or maybe it's hard, to believe that a holy man died long ago and then rose from the dead. But if that doesn't change your life, whether you're a Christian or not, it's kind of useless to you, isn't it? Lots of Christians talk about Jesus rising from the dead, but it doesn't make that much difference in their lives. Maybe that's you. And maybe you're realizing right now that your experience of Christ has been kind of disappointing. To you, I say, there is more. Until God comes so close to you that you can feel him and you can see him for who he is, because he opens your blind spirit, the blind eyes in your spirit. You haven't experienced enough of God. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Whether you haven't tasted the free gift of the water of life yet, or you are just thirstier than usual, because Jesus took our sin upon himself and clothed us in his own righteousness, Every one of us can confidently approach the throne of grace on which our Heavenly Father sits and ask Him to give us a deeper experience of God. And that will happen as we read the Bible, pray, and worship together, as we embrace discipleship and live in close relationships in Christian community, and embrace our own crosses as we leave everything to follow him. For it is ultimately in being united with Christ in times of suffering that we are nearest to God. If you are suffering now, regardless of whether it's because of something someone else did or something you did or just plain old pain and illness, draw near to Christ. Christ's resurrection is the beginning of the end for suffering for all who call on his name. Cry out to Jesus for mercy and help in time of need because he is merciful and he understands what it feels like to suffer rejection, pain, and shame. Come and leave your old ways behind and find rebirth into God's family. Amen.